How Democratic Control of the Senate Changes the Runoff. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy. And we are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just listening to us for the first time, welcome. And be sure to follow us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. So only about three weeks until the runoff. I know that we're we're taping this right after a very busy weekend where we both mixed campaign coverage with our family duties. I went from my kid's nine-year-old birthday party to a Herschel Walker event. I went from my other kid's uh, championship winning tennis match to go talk about all this stuff on TV. It's been real busy for both of us, but we're getting to another home stretch. We're getting to yet another three weeks out from another election here. Yes, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm, I don't think it's a train. I think it's actually the light at the end of the tunnel. I think we're almost there, Greg. You've been saying that for months, though. <laughs> <laughs> On today's episode, we're going to talk about what democratic control of the U.S. Senate means for this Senate runoff race. And we're also going to talk about the other giant story that would otherwise be leading the podcast, but we're having so much news that we can't control it. Uh, the new Speaker of the House in Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Okay, Patricia, we sort of saw this coming. On Friday, we had Arizona U.S. Senate race called for Democratic incumbent Mark Kelly. That put Democrats at 49 votes in the chamber. And then we were watching very closely the mail-in ballots trickle in in Nevada. Nevada is always a little longer to process because so many voters there do mail in their ballots. And that, I don't think there's a requirement that they count them early like there is in Georgia now. But we knew what the trend lines were showing. We knew it, it was showing that Senator Masto, the Democratic incumbent, was on track to win because there's so many outstanding ballots in Clark County, which is the home of Las Vegas, the, the most populous and the most important Democratic county in Nevada. And so we knew the trends were, were going that way. We just didn't know when the race would be called. And it was called Saturday night as I was at my friend's 40th birthday party. <laughs> Which is perfect timing for you, Greg, because it's heaven always. forbid you do one consistent event with your family or friends and not uh, stop to write a story. ruined by politics. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's a huge deal and it really does have major, major implications on the Georgia Senate race. Not as much direct implications as indirect implications. Mm -hmm. It means that this will not be the race that 
decides control of the U.S. Senate. So I think that automatically just pulls a little bit of the spotlight back. It's going to pull off some of the intensity. It's certainly going to drain away some of the money. I think there will still be tons and tons of national interest, but it just will not be the same replay as 2021. I think that's not a bad thing for anybody. But I think it's also probably, if you had to game it out, probably helps Raphael Warnock a little bit more than Herschel Walker, because we've just talked to so many Republican voters who said control of the U.S. Senate is my top priority. So you take that off the table. Then if you're Herschel Walker's campaign, you've got to really work extra hard to get those voters who did vote for you out to the polls. And then you've got to convince some of those crossover voters who voted for Raphael Warnock. You got to get them to change their minds or else get them not to come out at all. So I think their work got a little bit more complicated when you take the control of the Senate off the table. That's my gut too, Patricia, because so much of what we've been hearing from Herschel Walker and his allies was basically a vote for Herschel Walker. Walker is a vote for Republican-controlled Senate. It's a vote against Joe Biden. It's a vote for GOP Senate. It's a vote against Chuck Schumer, all that. And now that argument is off the table. Now, um, as Senator Warnock's, one of his fake staffers said exactly that. This means that he's lost that core argument. But I would say this. I've talked to some senior Democrats, too, who who are worried that at the same time, it could mean less energy for Democrats. And we saw on social media, there was this big, basically a campaign to make sure Democrats remained engaged and didn't kind of buy into, oh, this lowers the stakes, so it's not as important for Democrats to show up either. And we've heard from senior Democratic officials basically saying that, yes, it's not control of the Senate, but a 51st vote is so important for Democrats right now because it helps balance out Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema, the two moderate Democrats from Arizona and West Virginia. Also, it helps Democrats going into a very challenging 2024 cycle where they have a lot more harder to win seats to control. Yeah. And the anxiety that I hear from Democrats is that they didn't get the job done the last time around anybody on the ticket. So Democrats did not deliver the voters they needed to the last time around. Was that the message? Was it the messenger? Was it the ground game? Raphael Warnock was the outlier. He was the by far the best performing Democrat statewide, but they're not as confident about their ground operation as they were in 2021. So I think um, talk to both sides of the Senate campaign and nobody is comfortable. Nobody feels like they've got this. And the Warnock team and I would say Democrats at large specifically know that they've got quite a bit of work ahead of them, because if you take 2021 out of the mix, Republicans also had really the ability and the consistency to win these statewide runoffs. And that's what they're concerned about as well. I think chaos might be the operative term because all the campaigns, all the behind the scenes folks I was talking to were just kind of like trying to figure out what the next day would bring, let alone the next few weeks would bring. It's so hard. It's so quick. They have to scale up, right? They used to be nine weeks. Now it's only four weeks. It's great for it's great for voters. It's, it's not bad for reporters either. But for the campaigns themselves, there's no room to breathe, really. You know, for instance, the Atlanta Press Club is going to hold its Senate debate on Monday, November 21st. And I was calling around the campaigns, talking to them. What do you think? I mean, no one's expecting Herschel Walker to show up. What if it's a surprise? And basically the word I got back from different operatives from both parties was, we, you know, we're just trying to figure out what we're doing this coming Monday, let alone next Monday. You know, and to think about debate prep time being worked into a schedule and all the other issues that come into that. This is going to be, it's a sprint, but it's a sloggy, it's a mushy sprint. It's because there's so much going on behind the scenes right now. 
a mushy sprint. There, you know, there used to be those um, races, those those mutter races where people would like crawl through the mud, but it was in fact a timed race against each other. It definitely yep. has that feel to it. Listen, another really heavy lift for both of these campaigns, uh, but especially the Democrats, is going to be re-educating voters, telling them how to vote, especially if you want to vote early or vote early mail-in. That is requires a, a very quick turnaround time. If you want to request a mail-in ballot, you need to do that now. I was speaking with somebody yesterday who has a college student out of the state, is overnighting materials back and forth to the wow. student. I mean, this is really, it's it's a shorter, obviously a shorter early vote period, no Saturday voting for a couple of different reasons and a very strange twist on the state law. So these campaigns also have to go back and tell all of these voters, if you want to vote early, which it's, is their preference for these campaigns, here's how you do it. Here's when you do it. Here's when you can't do it. So it's a, it, that on its own is a whole nother voter education process that they have very little time for. Yeah, it really is an intense new effort. I asked U.S. Senator Rick Scott of Florida, the head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, who has been spending an awful lot of time in Georgia lately pushing for Herschel Walker. I asked him about turnout now that control of the Senate has been decided. He thinks the turnout will be depressed. I don't think so. I think, I think they realize that, you know, this is about who's going to represent Georgia. So this is sort of the line that Senator Warnock's campaign has been pushing, too, that is never, he's never tried to make this a national race. Right. He doesn't want to bring in Joe Biden to the conversation. Don't want that. Don't want that. No. So instead, he's been saying this is about a one on one matchup. And we haven't necessarily heard Herschel Walker himself say that, but that was Senator Scott trying to spin it that way. Herschel Walker basically gave the same stump speech I've heard a million times before at this point. So we haven't seen a change in strategy in the runoff or now that Senate control has been decided, nor did we really see that from Senator Warnock either at one of their first campaign appearances on Sunday since this call. But I don't know if that, you know, I think there's a chance that could change, Patricia, as this sinks in with a lot of voters. Yeah, I'll be especially interested to see what the Herschel Walker campaign does, because Herschel Walker has been campaigning very, very differently from the other statewide Republicans who did better, frankly. So Governor Brian Kemp ran just on a hard, consistent economic message, along with public safety. Herschel Walker ran on a lot of social issues, especially uh, talked a ton about keeping boys out of girls' sports, that question about transgender athletes in sports. He's going to be campaigning or has plans to campaign this week with Riley Gaines, who was the young woman who swam against the University of Pennsylvania transgender swimmer. So he's certainly going to be continuing to dig in on those social issues. And so you can tell just by the surrogates that he's bringing in. Um, However, he also has released a new statewide ad up at the beginning of this week, and it took a different tone, talking about Herschel Walker helping people, people who know him personally speak on his behalf, saying that he's the real deal, a genuine person of good character. So you can see them really starting to try to address that character issue head on as well. So I don't know if we're going to have a bifurcated message here, one message on the stump, one message on the air. That's not that unusual. But I do think he needs to consider reaching out to those more middle of the road, moderate voters who he has lost the last time around. Those crossover voters who went, who either left it blank or went for Raphael Warnock. That does seem like the natural territory for him to go after. Um, although in such a short time frame, they may just decide that they're just going out trying to get the base back out and hope that the Democrats can't match them. Exactly. 
And, you know, we've seen this real effort from Herschel Walker's campaign to make this about Joe Biden, to tie this to Joe Biden's 37% approval ratings. We will see if that continues to kind of drive that point home. Yeah. And I also would like to see a little fresh polling on Joe Biden's numbers here in the state after he had really a relatively good night on election night. I wonder if he is as unpopular as he was when we the last time we took our poll. We'll have to see. Uh, it just doesn't feel like the Joe Biden message. Uh, first of all, it didn't win the last time around. Second of all, is it as potent as it seems like it is from the outside looking in. I mean, I don't talk, I don't hear from a lot of people loving Joe Biden, but I also hear from a lot of Democrats who wish that Democratic leadership would speak up for Joe Biden Hmm. and uh, defend the policies that he's passed because the policies are popular, even if the people aren't. That's an interesting point, Patricia. We don't know if we're going to have another AJC poll, but we certainly will see other polls from other outlets. And we're trying to figure out our role in all this these next three weeks because there's not much time to get those polls completed. But you're right. He was at 37%, but he might get a bounce. Also, you know, the fact that Kemp and other down-ticket Republicans won might not be because of singularly because of Joe Biden. It might be because of the things they did in office and other reasons. And, you know, again... I wasn't surprised that their messaging wasn't that different on Sunday than it was before the election, but I would be surprised if their message is the same next week, right? I I feel like both these campaigns to try to energize their core bases have to do something new. And so far, we've really just heard kind of the same. But we've seen different TV messaging. We've certainly seen, also seen TV ads from Senator Warnock saying, you know, these are why Republicans are, are backing him, which is a harder thing to argue in a runoff than it is a general election, because a runoff, you've got to stand on your own. <laughs> There's not another reason for people to come to the polls. But we'll see. Yeah, that's such a great question. Are those Republicans who went ahead and voted for Warnock, is a Republican going to come out and vote for Raphael Warnock? I just don't know. I mean, this is a, you know, the more I think about it, the more unpredictable and harder it is to peg. So um, we will see. They certainly, gosh, both these campaigns have their work cut out for them. It's when I'm glad I'm not in politics. (laughs) Yeah, really. Will Kemp Warnock voters who voted for Governor Kemp, who came out probably singular, you know, wanting to vote for Governor Kemp and other candidates on the ballot and not and kind of really squeamish about the Senate race and went ahead and voted for Warnock. Will they come out just to vote for Warnock? We'll soon find out. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your host, Greg Bluestein, with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We're not only your host, but we're also two of the trio that writes the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. You can get it in your inbox every morning 
If you're a subscriber to the AJC, you can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. And your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts. So you always know what's really going on. Patricia, we've had a ton of coverage the last couple of weeks about the surprise decision by House Speaker David Ralston to hang up his gavel and uh, cede his leadership position. And we have a result in the, the battle to succeed him. It was not a long, drawn-out battle. And really, it was one of the more dramatic moments I've seen at the Georgia Isles. Not because of any, you know, big speech, although there's lots of those speeches, and not because of any, you know, tense moment. But just in general, how many times have we been back behind that glass window and known exactly what a vote outcome would be, right? We know exactly what so many of these votes and these issues are preordained that, you know, the majority rules and you already know who the majority um, is. And, you know, there's very few bills that get brought up without knowing that they will pass or fail in some cases. But in this case, there's been a very secretive process in the battle between House Majority Leader John Burns and State Representative Barry Fleming of Harlem to become the next Speaker of the House. And up until just a few hours before the vote on Monday, I know I was being told that both sides have the vote. You probably were being told the same thing. I know that John Burns' allies went to great lengths to sort of clear the field for him. Jan Jones, the number two, got out of the race and ended up winning it, winning her 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 position back by acclamation. Other potential rivals of John Burns got out of the race and endorsed him. So there's a lot of behind the scenes activity and fire. And I was really, you know, I was like, look, I'm gonna be way too much of a political junkie, but I was really on edge when that vote happened because I did not know who would win. Well, there are a couple things going into it. First of all, it's a secret ballot. So people could say that they were voting for one person and then, frankly, just vote for somebody else. So that happens and that does happen in leadership races. So even if somebody had locked up the commitments, you never really know until the very end. And then also, we have not seen a contested speakership in any recent memory, not only because Ralston has been there for 13 years, but because any previous speakerships were typically kind of already understood um, to be, you know, people kind of knew what direction it was headed Mm -hmm. in. And so also there were a number of down-ballot races, down-ballot leadership races that were also contested with multiple candidates. So you did not have a sense whether the the House itself, the House GOP caucus had sort of collectively decided we are going to take a more Ralston-like kind of moderated tone or we are going to go for a sort of a slate of firebrands because there were so many different contestants in each of the leadership races, you kind of just didn't know. And so we were all kind of watching on pins and needles from the back of the of the house and the media galleries and saying, oh, what's going to happen? What in the world is going to happen? So we heard uh, the leadership, we heard the um, nominating speeches and then also the speeches from John Burns and Barry Fleming. It was so fascinating. They both characterized themselves as having had David Ralston as a mentor, respecting David Ralston a great deal, uh, the things, the leadership lessons they had learned from David Ralston. But you knew one of them yeah. was definitely very close with Ralston and one of them was quite yeah. a bit less Let's so. Let's pause right there because, you know, both of them might claim David Ralston as a mentor. David Ralston would probably only claim one of them as a protege and that would be yes. John Burns. Uh, David Ralston and Barry Fleming were not close, have not been close. Barry Fleming even mentioned their strained relations leading up to the 2021 session. He said that they were repaired when 
Barry Fleming decided to take on the authorship of the Georgia election rewrite that caused so much controversy. But there are people in the speaker's camp who would very much contend with that, with that argument. Uh, yes, in, to in say, real time. In yeah, real time, they might ex- contend exactly. with that. <laughs> in real time in our text messages, they might, they might have been contending uh, with that notion. Either way, it does speak to you, the respect and the just the honor that they show David Ralston, that even someone who we wrote multiple times of being a Ralston rival, like it was, it's not a surprise. It's not, it's very well known within the chamber. They both are sort of wrapping themselves in the speaker's shroud in a sense, uh, cloaking themselves in his reputation in order to try to win this seat. Yeah. And ultimately, of course, John Burns won that decision. He will be formally voted in by the House membership in January. But this was the decision of the GOP caucus. And if you had to explain it to somebody from outside of the chamber, I think essentially the vote was for somebody who was more certainly more moderate in tone, more of a consensus builder and more like David Ralston. And so it looked like the House membership was saying sort of a further endorsement for Ralston's leadership style by picking his one of his top deputies uh, to continue on in his role. And what do you expect over the next, you know, let's say this coming legislative session? Do you think that he will be the sort of legacy candidate? He'll he'll continue? Because a lot of Democrats I talked to and Republicans both said that they don't expect too much of a deviation from the track record that Speaker Ralston had, which of course was very conservative. He, he shepherded some of the most conservative legislation that we've seen in Georgia, modern Georgia history through the chamber. Abortion restrictions, gun expansions, tax cuts, you know, all that, but also worked across party aisles to pass criminal justice overhauls, mental health reforms, all these other issues that have got national news and that showed that Georgia also has a a bipartisan streak. Yeah. And Ralston, it's so important to note, uh, just because he was moderate in tone didn't mean he was always moderate in his politics. He was a conservative, conservative lawmaker. And there's no question about that when you look at the list of conservative priorities that came out of the General Assembly when he was speaker. But, you know, I think the biggest challenge for John Burns, even as similar as he is in um, maybe style and even substance, he won't have the time that Ralston has had to amass his power and his influence and his respect within the chamber. Certainly there's an immense amount of respect out there for John Burns. But if any any conservative group wanted to come, and when I say group, I mean kind of group of lawmakers, wanted to come for Burns or take a shot or move legislation that maybe they might not have gotten past Ralston, um, this will be the time when Burns is probably at his weakest while he's still amassing that seniority, amassing that trust with members, and really working to build up his own sort of sphere of influence, Mm -hmm. I guess is the right way to say it. So a lot of that just comes with time, and Ralston had so much of it. And with each successive uh, term as speaker, he built up that influence and built up that ability to wield power when he wanted to, but he didn't do it whenever he wanted to. So it was really fascinating to see, and uh, it'll be fascinating to see how Burns uh, takes these next few steps. The early, you know, the early days of leadership are typically the most important. That sets the tone. It really tells other members, uh, both people in his camp, how much can they trust him, and people outside of his camp, how much do they need to worry about him? You know, Patricia, this is a completely new role. You know, he was quoted every so often often as the House Majority Leader, but now he's going to be front and center. He's going to be front of the mic for, you know, most of the day while they're in session, let alone afterwards when reporters like me and you ask, 
what just happened and why did it just happen? He's going to be the person in front of the cameras having to explain really sometimes difficult decisions by his caucus about why they took up certain bills and scrapped other bills and why there was votes on this legislation, but not that legislation. And he'll have to have that those same conversations with members of his own caucus who are notoriously fractious. Yes, notoriously fractious. Um, It was also really interesting to see him give his speech because his background is as a small businessman and as a farmer, whereas David Ralston is an attorney. Barry Fleming is a lawyer. Barry Fleming's speech was very, very smooth, very organized, very specific, very detailed. John Burns was um, more high level, but you could just sense the trust in that chamber for John Burns. And so I don't think they got elected based on their speeches. They got elected based on people's level of trust that he can continue to shepherd this house, which does have a smaller majority. And that's really yeah. important to know. It has a smaller majority. They want to grow their majority back, but they also know that um, not just demographic trends, but population trends in the state of Georgia means that more and more power is amassing toward the Atlanta area and away from the rural areas of the state. And so that's just changing the nature of the caucus and changing the amount of power they have and changing the numbers that they have. So it's a harder job uh, that he's inheriting than David Ralston walked into. But when you have a smaller caucus, it also means that you have a smaller majority and a smaller ability to lose votes. So he needs to keep the unity together for this group as well. And so I think the fact that he was able to clear the field, the fact that other people who could have run for this decided to Mm -hmm. get out of the race in order to give him the upper hand, I think that speaks to the amount of support that he has in that chamber and it will give him a big leg up going forward. And the fact that it is a dwindling majority, you know, that's about 100, 203 votes. What is it, 103 votes now? 101. 101 votes now. See, see what I know? Maybe we'll do that over. And the fact that it is... <laughs> I don't want to be wrong. Don't act either. like you don't know everything. Jeez, come on. <laughs> the fact that there's a dwindling majority, the fact that there there's only about 101 Republicans in the House rather than, you know, into the hundred and teens, like it was in a not so distant past, um, really came up in a lot of the speeches we heard too. And Patricia, one more note. I want to just make is about the people who introduced both the rivals. It was Will Wade, who is a freshman lawmaker, about to be a sophomore lawmaker, but um, who's really coming to his own. He's really, he's really become a force in the state house. He was the one. He was the lawmaker picked to vouch for John Burns. So, I'm just reading the tea leaves. He might play an increasing role in the Georgia legislature this coming year. And it was Sam Watson, the House Rural Caucus Chair, who introduced. Barry Fleming. And we know politics is vicious, but it's particularly vicious in the Georgia legislature. So um, this is the second attempt by Barry Fleming and his allies to ding and damage, or I guess go against the Ralston coalition. And so I won't be surprised to see, to see them sort of backbenched this cycle, but we'll see, you know, it's, it is a dwindling majority and they might need all the, the voices they can muster. Yeah. And Will Wade, putting Will Wade forward as the freshman, he was speaking to the other freshmen, the new freshmen in the chamber. There are 19 of them. And I thought it was a really strategic way to say, I know this gentleman and I know him as a freshman. And here are all of the things I was able to do because John Burns gave me the leeway and the background and the mentorship that I really needed to get those things done. And Will Wade did take the lead on a number of high profile conservative bills last session. So I completely agree. I think we're going to be seeing a lot of him. I think it's also really important to note that Chuck F. Strachan 
Nation picked up the House Majority Leader position. And that was another vote, I think, for a more moderate tone. He said in his speech to the chamber, one of the things he promised to do was to maintain decorum in the chamber. And you very rarely hear that in a political speech, like your list of promises. Everybody else was promising to to grow the majority, to raise the money, to go to the districts. And he said, I will maintain decorum and respect in this chamber. That was a big, big piece of Ralston's legacy and something that a lot the people who really were so fond of David Ralston's leadership style would really like to see continue. And so I thought it was just so smart and interesting of Estration to put that forward in his speech as well. And it worked because he got the votes. And bringing the age down, the median age down a little bit. (laughs) Among We saw that in the Senate too, with Jason Anavitarte winning a a leadership post. Burt Jones winning the lieutenant governor's races. He's in his low 40s. I know Chuck is an edge millennial. I know that because we used to sit next to each other in class way back at UGA. So, so I know he's a millennial, but barely so, and might be like me and not really embracing the title millennial. Um, so that is about all the time we have for today's show. Coming up on Friday's episode, we're going to answer your questions. I know we've already gotten a ton of them from the listener mailbag, which you can now call into the Politically Georgia podcast hotline anytime. Leave a question. We'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297 at 770-810-5297. Let us hear from you. Thanks so much for listening to Politically Georgia Podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.